Well, it's been seven years since Raul and Steph got married. Um, Boy, time flies. Uh, I've got some pictures here that that illustrate why people end up in in, uh, marital counseling. And uh, if you've never been there, then you should take notes so you don't have to go there. Okay? (laughs) Turn the lights down. Turn the lights down. There we go. <laughs> Any of you women ever been in a situation like that? Here's the way that pastors get into trouble in their marriages. You are coming to church this morning, aren't you? (laughs) Now, for those of you that haven't ever been to marriage counseling, I wanted you to see what it's like, okay? Stop burning the old guy's breakfast. That's my favorite marriage counseling cartoon. Thanks. That's, uh, it's easy to laugh at the faults of others, but marital discord is anything but funny. John Stott, a famous pastor from England who's with the Lord now, put it this way, there's almost no unhappiness so poignant as that of a of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment to, to degenerate into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. The unhappiness of a struggling marriage is so painful that many Christians have defied the clear instruction of Christ about the permanence of marriage So today we're going to understand what Christ's clear instruction is and how we can not only survive but thrive in our marriages. Please read, follow as I read uh, Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife... For any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 19. There are two passages which are somewhat parallel, and uh, you, you need to understand that these are the two key passages in which Christ himself 
enunciated this truth. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason, or for any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery." God's plan for marriage, as we looked at it last week already from this passage, is permanence. Marriage is one man and one woman becoming one by an act of God. The, the, the concept of covenant is used with marriage a number of times, and, and God sees, a, sees something more than the contemporary words, which are, it's just a piece of paper. It's not just a piece of paper to God. I had a, uh, a woman who was probably 50 years old in a church who was slated to marry a man, and, and uh, um, trying to remember the exact scenario, but basically, uh, I believe I was on deck to do the wedding, and then something got delayed. And so she just moved in with him. And she came and we were talking about it and I said, I mean, she grew up in churches like ours. She knew the truth. And there's always this idea, well, it's just, it's just a piece of paper. It's just the formality. It's just that day, you know, whatever. No. To God, it's not just a formality. To God, it is when two people come together by a covenant, by promises, and the result is one plus one equals one. God creates marriage. God created marriage to be a permanent relationship. The two become one flesh. God sees one new entity. Marriage is the permanent relationship in the family. I will always be Stephanie's father, but her primary male relationship stopped being me seven years ago today. And it started being Raul. And I do not try to tell her how to live her life or run her family because he is the permanent relationship with her as a male, not me. We have a father and daughter relationship, and that's of the Lord. But it's not the same. The husband and wife relationship is the permanent relationship. Husbands and wives, no one is to come between you. Not children, not parents, not friends, not your BFF. There is a person whom you are to love more than your spouse, and that is Jesus Christ. And you can reference that in Luke 14 if you'd like to understand that. 
God intends marriage to be a permanent relationship in which two people create one new life. And that explains why God's attitude toward divorce is hatred. That's an awful strong word. Most of us uh, modern Americans are, uh, uh, don't like to use that word, especially those of us that are Christians. But that is the word that God uses in Malachi chapter 2. The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence. We looked at that last week as we considered adultery, and the idea that when two people become one, to take that apart is not just to separate and go their own ways, it is to tear into this one new fabric. And so God says he hates divorce. Now, I know many people here have been divorced, and so please don't take this as some personal thing, and I'll, you, you hear me out till the end of the message, and you'll understand more of God's attitude and how we ought to respond to it. But we need to ask ourselves, do we have the same attitude God has? You see, God didn't say, well, it's, it's really better if you could stay married, but, you know, that's the way things go. God didn't say, give it a try, see how it works out. He didn't say, well, nobody's perfect. God says he hates divorce. Now, one of the ways we might perceive God's attitude toward the permanence and the importance of marriage would be in his law regarding adultery. And so um, we know from the, from the Ten Commandments, this is number seven, you shall not commit adultery. But if we look at the punishment, then we understand something more about God's attitude. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. That's pretty harsh. If you doubt that God hates divorce, that ought to clear it up. God hates adultery, which is a, a primary cause of, of divorce. I know there are many other things that come between husbands and wives. But he hates it so much that he says, if you commit adultery, you should be put to death. Wow. God hates divorce. Say it with me. God hates divorce. That just needs to sink into us and, and to make no doubt about it because all of the truth in Scripture regarding divorce and marriage is consistent with that statement. This is not an anomaly out of the Old Testament. So why would God even mention divorce in the law? Look at Matthew 19 again in verse 8. Verse 7. So the Pharisees said, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? Why would God even put the words paper or certificate and divorce in the law if he hates it so much? Well, let's go back and look at that reference from Deuteronomy 24. 
Let's look at the Old Testament regulation of divorce. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land in which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now what did that law prohibit? What did it prohibit? Class? What? It prohibited the second marriage of the original woman back to her divorcing husband. Do you realize it's an if, 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 then, then her former husband cannot take her back. It's an abomination. Why is it an abomination? Because the first divorce and then her subsequent marriage made her an adulterer. And if her husband got remarried, it made him an adulterer. And now two adulterers are going to get married. And so she is defiled. This is a regulation about divorce, not an endorsement or approval of it. And so the piece of paper that they would put in her hand kept her from being tarnished goods. Do you understand that a divorce, a woman who's kicked out of a guy's house under the cloud of uncleanness would be hard-pressed to find a place to live, a place to work, or whatever. I mean, she would be, she would be persona non grata, as we say. She, she's nothing. But if he says, well, I divorced her, it, gives her, it gave her a certain approval, a certain legal standing, so somebody else could marry her. Now, remember, what was the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament? Death. death. So, okay, so let's first of all say all of the adulterers were put to death. Now we're talking about only a limited number of people who came to a certain spot in their marriage and said, I don't want you anymore. God regulated how those divorces should be handled, but he did not approve of them. What God did not say in this passage is, if your wife displeases you, it's okay to divorce her. Now, you understand, and if you don't, I'll help you. You understand that in that day, the wife didn't have the right to divorce her husband, not in Israel. The men had the rights. And I'm not saying that's okay, but I'm saying that's the way it was. Now, when you get into Greek society, say, at the time of Christ, the Greeks had some different rights than the, than the Jewish folks. But that's why this is addressed to the man and the woman in the way that it is. And so she doesn't have the opportunity to divorce her husband, who's a bum. Okay, She doesn't have that opportunity. He just says, well, I don't like you anymore, so I'm going to divorce you. But God didn't say that's okay. He said, in essence, here's the Lunsford paraphrase, since you are going to frivolously terminate marriage, then when you do, make a legal document for the sake of the wife so she won't be mistreated. And then you cannot remarry her after she marries someone else. 
God regulated divorce, but he did not endorse it. To say that God approved of divorce because there was a law regulating it would be the same as saying that he approved of stealing since he made regulations about dealing with theft. Because he did that, he said, now somebody steals, they have to pay back. Does that mean he approves of theft? No, of course not. But what happened was, by the time of Christ, this had totally degenerated. The practice in Jesus' day, Matthew 19, the Pharisees come and say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And we're thinking, does that mean that they were asking him if, if he could get a divorce for, for any old thing? And yes, that is what they're asking. At the time of Christ, there were two schools of interpretation, if you will, of the Old Testament law. And one of those schools was fairly conservative and would have limited divorce, say, to adultery or, or some, something considered to be really bad or whatever. And then there was the very liberal school, which was real popular, especially with the Pharisees. And uh, while I'm not going to quote from some of the authors that I read, I'm going to summarize what they said, and these are not Lunsford's exaggerations. These are words right from the history. You could read somebody like Josephus or people like that. The word uncleanness in the Old Testament, if a husband finds some uncleanness in the wife and writes her a bill of divorce, how did they interpret that in the time of Christ? They interpreted it this way. She spoiled his dinner. She walked around with her hair down in public. She spoke to men on the streets. She spoke disrespectfully of her husband's parents in his presence. Or he found someone prettier. Now, what does that sound like today? State of Washington has no-fault divorce. You want to get a divorce? No fault. It's not his fault. It's not her fault. We're getting divorced. That's what they had, only it was one-sided, just the men. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 5, please. It's not an accident that verses 27 through 30 precede verses 31 through 32. Okay? <laughs> and I'm not talking about the numbers here. I'm talking about the fact that God wrote that truth about adultery right before he wrote the truth about divorce. And I don't think that's an accident because God doesn't do things randomly It could well be that the way the men of the Jewish men avoided adultery was through divorce. You understand? If a guy can divorce his wife for just any reason, he's uh, he's walking around one day and he goes, "Whoa, look at that, babe!" Whoa. And he goes home and his wife burns his dinner and he says, "I divorce you." Writes her the bill and goes after the babe. No, they wouldn't do that, would they? That doesn't happen today, does it? Oh, it does. One commentator wrote it this way. Here was the situation. Lustful men chafed at the law against adultery, which chained their appetites 
Then the happy thought occurred to them that there was no law against marrying the object of their lust. The problem, though, was what to do with such a wife when you get tired of her and wanted another. Well, in that case, you'd have to unmarry her. But in order to keep her reputation clean, you should give her a written evidence that she was no longer married to you. Jesus just bluntly called this finagling by its proper name, legalized adultery. They're trying to stay respectable according to the law of God and still carry out the desires of their heart, which were wicked. And so they came up with this divorce for any reason. Did you know that the Muslims have a similar system to this day? Now, I may not pronounce it correctly. As best I can pronounce it, it's called nikah mutah. It is a fixed time arrangement between a man and a woman that dissolves once the duration expires. Let me say it simply. It is temporary marriage. And I read about it first in the newspaper in recent days, uh, in the last year or so, temporary marriage. And what is it really? Prostitution. But it is religiously acceptable. John Stott summarized Matthew 19 this way. The Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce. Is there grounds for divorce? And Jesus was preoccupied with the institution of marriage. The Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. Jesus called it a concession to the hardness of the human heart. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. The Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. Jesus took it so seriously that with only one exception, he called all remarriage after divorce adultery. He called all remarriage after divorce adultery. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, please. 1 Corinthians 7. What does God allow in divorce today? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to understand and, and just restate what we've been reading from Matthew 5 and, and Matthew 19. Adultery tears the oneness of marriage in such a way that God allows divorce. In other words, if two people are married and one of them is adulterous, God allows divorce. If, and, and Jesus said it both places, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, uh, you know, any divorce except for adultery. So some people have called this the exception to the rule. The rule is permanence of marriage. The exception is for adultery. Now there is one other exception, and, and I, we've got it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you've never spent time in 1 Corinthians 7, you ought to uh, this week, because it has a number of things to say about marriage. We just want to look at one of them, starting in verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Now, that does not mean that these are Paul's thoughts and not God's thoughts. He means these are not the words of Christ. These are God's words coming through me. A wife is not to depart from her husband. There we go. There's right off the bat from that. There's that rule of, of thumb. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Even if she does depart 
let her remain unmarried or be reconciled, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother, that's a reference to a Christian, if a, if a brother has a wife who does not believe, and if she is willing to stay with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband, or a Christian woman who has a husband that does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or led to Christ by the wife. The unbelieving wife is led to Christ by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage or under um, is not uh, mandated to stay in that marriage in such cases but god has called us to peace for how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife if the unbeliever departs let him depart the second acceptable reason for divorce to god is the departure or the desertion is the word we often use by an unbeliever of a believer Okay, two acceptable reasons for divorce with God. The allowance by God for divorce is the departing of an unbeliever or the adultery of whether a believer or not. But that's not the whole story. That is not the whole story for Christ-following Christians. And you'll see in your notes that you're about to come on to the second point, number five. Um, So for those of you that are numbers people, you can change that to six and then number seven, which will come later. um, So you don't get confused um, because uh, you can see we have the numbers differently here. And I would hate for you to get lost right in the middle of this glorious sermon. There is an alternative to divorce. And frankly, I don't think the Christian community has taken it seriously enough. I agree with John Stott, the quote that I read at the beginning of this sermon, in which he said, there is almost no unhappiness so poignant as that of an unhappy marriage. The marriage can degenerate into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. I believe that, I've seen that. I understand, at least by observation, how hard marriage can get. But right before God wrote 1 Corinthians 13, he said these words. I show you a more excellent way. Now, the more excellent way, the specific reference in 1 Corinthians 12, is to the fact that the, the Corinthian church had degenerated into groups of people who loved each other but nobody else and they didn't work together and they criticized each other and and there was all kinds of sinful things going on and 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 yet in the midst of that boy they had worship services and they spoke in tongues and they did this and that and the other and the apostle paul comes comes he he reviews all of that he he gives them the truth of god the right and the wrong of all of that and he comes down and at the end of chapter 12 he says but i want to show you a better way He had already showed them what is right and wrong about their behavior toward each other in the church, what's important in the church. He'd give all kinds of information. And then he says, but I want to show you a better way. 
And I want to challenge you to a better way when it comes to marriage and difficulty and divorce. Because it's real easy to come to a, a hard spot or maybe years of a hard spot and then just say, I'm out of here. Because you believe that will bring you the greatest joy. I've listened to people say, God wants me to be happy, therefore I'm getting a divorce. Well, I got news for you. What does God think about your divorce? What? And so you think that God is all of a sudden going to do a 180 and go, hey, you're, you're in a difficult situation. And so I'm going to withdraw my attitude while you get divorced. I don't know about you, Christian, but I don't want to get on the other side of the line from God. And yet I show you a more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? The more excellent way is the way of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, and, and, and he defines love as love suffers long. And, and the most easy translation of that is patient. Love is kind. It does good to others. Love does not envy. It is content. Love does not parade itself. In other words, it doesn't boast. It's not always about itself. It's not puffed up. That is, it's not proud and arrogant. It does not behave rudely. It is respectful in every way. Love does not seek its own. It is not self-centered. Love is not provoked. It's not easily angered. Love thinks no evil. This is one that is a poor translation in the King James and the New King James. The best translation is this. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs suffered and bring them up every time there's a problem. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. That is, it's not happy when others sin and fail and fall down. Love rejoices in the truth. Happy when people live in God's truth and do right. It bears all things. That is, it absorbs the wrongs. In this life, we are going to be wronged by husbands and wives, by people at church, by people at work, by our kids, by our parents. And we've got to decide how much wrong we can absorb or how much God will enable us to absorb. Love believes all things. That is, it trusts. I never understood this phrase until I started doing marriage counseling. And I don't say that lightly, but I came to understand how bad the breakdown can be between two people to where one person doesn't believe anything the other person says. And yet God says we have to trust. Ultimately, we have to trust in him that he's going to protect us and so we believe other people. Hopes all things. That is, believes in God's future. I am an optimist because God is in control, not because the world is in such good shape. Endures all things, sets no boundaries. Love never fails. That is, it doesn't give up. Clearly, there are people who commit adultery and move out and take up residence with their sinful partner, and that means this marriage is over, and this person, this brother, this sister is free to remarry in God. And there are unbelievers who leave 
and say, I'm divorcing you and I'm moving away and that's that. And this, unbe- this believer is free, clearly. But there are people who have sinned, perhaps terribly, but they come in humble repentance confessing their sin and asking forgiveness and they should be forgiven. And there are people who sin against us but need to be pursued and persuaded to confess and repent. And some of them will. And when that happens, we need to do this. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving as God forgave you. I don't know how hard it is to forgive after adultery. Uh, I am happy to say that my wife has never given me one reason to even be jealous, much less has she been unfaithful. So you could argue that I'm asking you to do something that I don't know anything about. And I'll say, yep, you're right. I don't understand it. But I understand this. It is God who works. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you. Is there a limit to what God can do? Is there a limit to how much forgiveness he can give you? The limitation is not on you, it's on your God. Is he big enough to empower you to say, I'm sorry, or to say, I forgive? The God who forgives endlessly you know peter said how many times shall i forgive and jesus said 70 times seven but think about that number on god's side of the equation how many times has he forgiven you way more than 70 times seven his power the god who forgives endlessly his power is available to me The question is, will I use his power? Or do I believe my path is better than his path? Do I believe his better way is really better? Or is my way the better way? You see, not only do I need to forgive in love, but we also need to rebuild, restore, and recreate a godly marriage. I understand Believe me, I've been there multiple, multiple times. I understand that when marriages break down, they don't just go zip, boom, we're on our way happily ever after. I understand that. We've got to be committed to rebuilding, restoring, and recreating. And many times, we have to be committed to creating a marriage that is better than it ever was because the truth is it wasn't that good to begin with. That's what my house looked like before I started working on it. (laughs) That's what my house would look like if I didn't work on it. You see, a lot of people get married and build a lousy foundation. A lousy foundation. I'm not the guy you want to hire to lay the cement for your house, okay? 
because when I build things, I make them look good in the end, but there's a lot of fooling around that goes on in the meantime. And with the foundation, you don't want to do that. No, you want the foundation to be level and square and plumb. Because otherwise, the house... You know, I built a shed. It's a beautiful shed. But if you look at one corner, the siding goes like this because the walls go like that. <laughs> but I can compensate on the outside, but if that was a real house, ooh, not going to be good. And a lot of marriages are built that way. And so, frankly, a lot of it's done in ignorance. People don't know God's way to lay the foundation in their dating years. And, 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 and so they lay whatever foundation is common to them and common to the world. And, and they go on, they get engaged, and, and then they assume, oh, everything's going to be great. Because once we get married, you know, that's when wedded bliss starts right there. And, and, and everything's going to be wonderful. And they put all kinds of effort and time into the wedding day. And they think, that's going to really make this thing sing, you know. And... and and then a few years down the road, and the problem is really that foundation was poorly laid. And you get some holes, and you get some rust, and you get some wood that's rotten, but you know what? You can fix that house up. And you can fix that house up easier than you can throw it away and build a new one. Now, there's one more lesson here, and I've called that lesson the reality check of Christ's instruction on marriage. And it comes in this verse right here that I cleverly avoided reading till now, till I hope it gives you some impact. When Jesus got done with his teaching about divorce and, and adultery, look what the disciples said. If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Do you understand that they all thought like the Pharisees? They thought, well, you get married, but if it doesn't work out, then you move on to somebody new and you write her a bill of divorce. And Jesus said, no, only for adultery. And they said, wow, it's better not to get married. Because what did they expect in marriage? They expected difficulty and hardship. And of course, they didn't have Christian marriage with the Holy Spirit and so on. And, and yet, they clearly expected marriage to be so hard that it would be better not to get married. Single people, if you can't get a godly marriage, it would be better not to. But here's the great news today. You can build the foundation of your future marriage on Christ. Jesus said, if you want to be wise, build your life on me. I am the rock, and when the storms of life come, the house will stand firm. But if you're unwise, you're going to build it on the sand, and the storms of life will come, and your house will start to sink. So build your, build your marriage on Christ. Build your relationship on Christ. How do you do that? It's not very complicated it's just a little hard. There's a difference between complicated and hard. Be a disciple. Be a disciple. Be a committed follower of Christ. 
be committed to finding a disciple. Now, I am not saying, please get this right, I am not saying that anytime any two Christians marry, everything's going to be fine. I am saying this, and I'll stand by this, and I'll argue with you until you get so tired you won't stay anymore. Any two disciples of Christ can marry, and everything will work out. But there's a difference between being a professing Christian, words out of the mouth, and a living disciple who is obedient to Christ and seeking his will. Be a disciple, be a Christ follower, be surrendered to him, committed to him, living under his word, and look for one of those. They're hard to find. But I'm going to tell you something. You can find them when you are doing God's will. Our church in Tukwila was not as big as this church. And I could tell you story after story after story of disciples who found disciples in our church. Many of them kind of came in, got married, and then the Lord moved them away. One fellow moved from the east coast of Seattle to take an engineering job. He came to our church because he was a committed disciple looking for a church, and there he is. And he met a girl, and they got married, and his job transferred him back to Pennsylvania. No, God didn't have anything to do with that, I'm sure. That was before ChristianMingle.com. I could also tell you some disaster stories, though, too. But not when it's two disciples. God can bring you a mate wherever you are. The question you have to answer is, am I a disciple? Am I following God's will for my life right now? Be a Christ follower. Be a disciple. Be committed to finding a disciple. Number three, conduct all of your relationship in a godly way. Remember, I I said this wasn't going to be complicated. It's just hard. Why is it hard? Because there are pulls. There are drives. There are desires. And yeah, it's hard, but it's not complicated. Only date believers. Um, If we go back to rule two, the only way you're going to find a disciple is if you limit yourself to dating Christians. Uh, evangelistic dating is not on God's ticket. I understand some people have gotten saved. Uh, Believe me, I've been down all these roads with lots of people. You want God's blessing? You say, God, I am so committed to your way that I will only date those who are actively walking with you. Only date believers. Become friends first and foremost. The worldly concept of of saying, is there a physical connection? Because if there is, it's going to work out. Obviously is upside down because look at the results. Duh. If you keep doing the same thing and keep getting the same bad result, what does the world call that? Insanity. Obviously that doesn't work. So become friends first and foremost. Leave the physical stuff for marriage. I'm not trying to say you can't hold hands or have a pinky hug or whatever. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is there needs to be a commitment that says, generally speaking, God has reserved sexual connection for marriage. And I got news for you. this This is a flash. I should write the book on this one. Every man and every woman are sexually compatible. 
Okay? Now, I understand some people have been sexually sinned against. And I understand there are some difficulties that go in those relationships. I understand that. But don't tell me that if you save yourself for marriage and you're both disciples, that you're going to wake up on that first honeymoon morning and go, well, that was kind of disappointing. Okay? And I understand this story is bigger than that, but I'm just telling you, save the physical stuff for marriage. Talk about things that matter. Talk about things that matter. What do I mean by that? I mean, look forward and say, what, what's going to matter in life? And, 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 and are we on the same page? Do, have we both accepted God's definition of marriage? Are we both prioritizing the way God wants us to have our values? You know, um, and I understand that things change. But if you have some, some expectations, you say, well, I hope to have children. This person says, I hope to have no children. Don't get married expecting them to change. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a right attitude, but if you get married knowing we have a major difference of opinion on a significant issue, and then lo and behold, they don't change, you know what they'll say to you in five years? We agreed to this. Because I've heard it out of their mouth. So don't talk about the stuff that matters. Don't think, oh, it'll just work out. No, no. Talk about the things that matter. Conduct all of your relationships in a godly way so that when one of them gets serious, you won't have to break it off or turn back and suffer heartache. Isn't that, isn't that, that's some rocket science there today, folks. Just act godly all the time. And, and, and so you're, you're hanging around this boy, you're hanging around this girl, and next thing you know, you're thinking, boy, I'd like to spend the rest of my life with this person. Well, Lord bless you! Because you've been doing the right things all along. But if one day you go, oh, I really have affection for this person, but they're not walking with the Lord. Oh, you can fix that, but it will rend your heart. Don't, don't put yourself through that. <sighs> have you heard some of these excuses from the auto accident forums? You've seen them on the internet. I thought my window was down, but I found it was up when I put my hand through it. The guy was all over the place. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> I was driving my car out of the driveway in the usual manner when it was struck by the other car in the same place it had been struck several times before. As I approached the intersection, a stop sign suddenly appeared in a place where no stop sign had ever appeared before. I was unable to stop in time to avoid the accident. These all have something in common. And what they have in common is this. I wasn't responsible. Something just happened. Who's responsible when you're driving a car? What? You. <laughs> Defensive driving. How about defensive living and relationships? You know, honestly, I hear people say, I don't know what happened. 
You know, I, I thought everything was fine, and boom, all of a sudden, here we are on the brink of divorce. Hey, folks, you are responsible. And the great news is, the great news is, having a good and godly marriage that lasts is absolutely possible in Christ. But it isn't spontaneous. It takes godly, diligent, biblical development from the beginning all the way through. Heavenly Father, help us. We want to live in relationship. You have put that in us. And we desire that. And that desire is good, and yet it pulls us towards some things that are sinful and some things that, that ultimately will not create good relationship. Father, help us to love you so much and trust you so much that we follow your path. We follow your path and we build relationships the way you want them built so that they won't have to end. So that divorce will not be in our future because we are walking with you. Father, I pray... I pray for anybody who's here today that may be struggling with this. I have no idea where people are at, but you do. And I pray that you would just give them your ray of hope and your ray of encouragement and excitement that this is possible. It is possible to have a godly and fulfilling marriage, but it does take some sacrifice. And then I pray especially for our singles, whether they be young or old or in between, that you would give them your joy and your peace and your hope as they work toward whatever your future is for them. Father, I pray this would be a place where disciples meet disciples. Uh, not just for our enjoyment, but much more so for your glory, so that we might be able to say, yes, God provides all of our needs in his time and in his way. Father, help us to hate divorce so much that we work to keep people from, from making decisions that will impact their life in a negative way. Help us to hate divorce so much that we train people to live in a godly way before marriage and in marriage. And help us to love those who have come to a hardship and help us to help them recreate and rebuild because no one is beyond your care and your love. Work in us today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.